This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's program, we take a deeper look at the American Rescue Plan just passed by the Senate, President Biden's stimulus package that many tout as a paradigm change. Princeton historian and Jacobin contributing editor Matt Karp joins us for a deeper analysis of the package. He says an injection of much needed cash isn't the same thing as empowering workers or creating a constituency for change. And we'll get him to explain. We then talk to Emil Dreitzer, whose new memoir, In the Jaws of the Crocodile, a Soviet memoir, recounts how he could become a journalist in the Soviet Union and why the detour into satire was not the only but also the best path. We also talk about the new Oscar-nominated Konchalovsky film, Dear Comrades, about an important strike and massacre in Novocherkask in southern Russia in 1962. Everything about that strike and the response from the authorities gives more insight into the nature of the Soviet Union than tomes of political analyses, and Emil Dreitzer is an ideal interpreter. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman and very pleased to have Matt Karp back with us. He's an associate professor of history at Princeton University and a contributing editor to Jacobin magazine. His book, This Vast Southern Empire, Slaveholders at the Helm of American Foreign Policy, was published by Harvard University. And it looks at the ways that slavery shaped U.S. foreign relations before the Civil War. And I just have to say it because it won many prizes and it was published, you know, about three years, four years ago now, five years ago almost. (laughs) Year adds an extra number to that number. (laughs) I can't remember what year we're in. This has been a lost year for so many of us. But in any case, what we're going to be talking about is Matt's journalism in Jacobin and especially the latest piece that was just published. And it's called No, Joe Biden won't give us social democracy. And so I've invited him on to try to explain what that means. The American Rescue Plan, which was passed by the Senate this week, in a slightly pared down version, is by all accounts a landmark legislation, with many saying it changes the paradigm. And that paradigm from a sort of, you know, socialism for the rich and austerity for everyone else into something else. And we're going to talk about what. And that Biden has not only channeled his inner FDR, but surpassed the New Deal in terms of the scope of this package. And this package is a $1.9 trillion stimulus package or a rescue plan. And as I just said, everybody's calling it a landmark of emergency relief for both the economy and the population that have been experiencing a devastating and profound crisis over the last year. The New York Times calls it the largest anti-poverty effort in a generation which will give a material boost to the living standards of the bottom 20%. And since it will be financed by debt, it is a return with a vengeance to fiscal policy and can be expected to give a significant jolt to aggregate demand. Many commentators across the political spectrum are arguing that it's not just a temporary spending bill that will help our poorest and stimulate economic demand, but are calling it transformational watershed. Some, in fact, in uh, liberal Democrats are saying it represents 
uh, transformation of the Democratic Party. In the American Prospect, Robert Kuttner said, maybe once or twice in a century, you can feel the ground shifting. This is surely one of those moments. But, you know, Matt, you start your article by saying there were many good things in this stimulus package. But to claim that the Democratic Party has embraced structural change are overblown. One injection of much needed cash isn't the same thing as empowering workers or creating a constituency for change. So we have a lot to unpack. Maybe we could just start by you laying out what you see as the main features of the American Rescue Plan and then to explain why, you know, all of the liberal Democrats, or not all of them, so many of them are calling it transformational. And what does that mean for them? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, just to do a bird's eye view of the legislation as a whole, and in a lot of ways, obviously, it's it's an extension of the packages that were passed by the House and Senate in 2020 and signed by Donald Trump, the CARES Act, and then the additional bump in December, which the CARES Act really set the standard for this kind of legislation. It's a ton of money going to direct payments to Americans. That is a new feature on the political landscape, this idea of, you know, Trump bucks or Biden bucks. And then the so-called super dole, the massively expanded and continually extended now unemployment relief, which is also kind of somewhat unprecedented in terms of in the CARES Act version. It, you know, in many cases, it, it offered a better standard of living than many, many jobs to that point. So in that, those two major features of the act of the rescue plan really just follow directly from the CARES Act and just basically extend it. The bill also, though, suiting its composition as a partisan democratic measure, has a scattering of other significant goodies. The medical funding and vaccine funding, that also follows from before. But, you know, there are a lot of small little good things and not so small little good things in here. You know, maybe one of the most important is the almost $90 billion to save some union pensions that had been on the brink of collapse. Clearly, you know, that would not have been done in a bipartisan fashion fashion. I think there's very significant, potentially even more significant child tax credit that is both significant in the sense it offers a, a big chunk of change, $3,000, $3,600 a year to for every child, but also will be paid out in monthly checks rather than just claimed it through taxes at the end. And also will apply to the very poorest Americans, the bottom 10% who'd been left out of previous sorts of, of tax credit relief. So those are some significant things. And then, but I think really what people are responding to is the collectivity of the extensions of these other relief bills on a very large scale, plus the addition of these other smaller features. There are a lot of other things. There's things for relief for farmers, for childcare providers, for all sorts of other, there's there's rental assistance, there's health care subsidies for those who are unemployed uh, that boost Obamacare a little bit. And, you know, I think it's the collectivity of that that everyone's excited about. I mean, the real other, finally, just to, just to wrap up, is a long laundry list of things. But I think what gets people the most excited, actually, and the, the framing that you'll hear mostly in, in the liberal press is actually not a comparison to the CARES Act. Because I think when you compare it to these previous stimuluses, you say, okay, this is larger and this is better. Uh, although, actually, in terms of the super doll, it's not larger. But in other ways, it's larger. The total size of the package is, is larger than the last stimulus. But what's exciting liberals is the comparison to the Obama stimulus. And that's what's prompting these kind of the arguments that there's a real ideological transformation. And I think that's for two reasons. One, it is much larger than the Obama stimulus, almost twice as large if you go by GDP, which is really the way to do this. It's not three times as large, but it's something like almost twice as large. 
And it's done without any real significant concessions to centrists. They did lose the $15 minimum wage, which I expect we'll talk about. But in terms of the size of the package, there was no self-negotiating in a really meaningful way. That that, that $1.9 trillion number stayed the same from the House to the Senate. That's a real difference from the way that the Obama stimulus was negotiated. So I think, you know, that comparison is really pushing a lot of people to say, hey, look, the era of mincing, triangulating austerity is over, and the era of negotiating with moderates and with Republicans is also over. There's a more partisan and a more free-spending Democratic Party. Right. That's exactly where I want to go. So on this issue of of how transformational it is and what that transformation actually means, on the surface, the Biden administration is transforming democratic politics. And you kind of point to it, but we're going to discuss it now, how paradoxical that is. So in general, he's following in the footsteps of the Clintons and Obama as creator and implementer of the new democratic politics, one that is, as we know, unapologetically neoliberal in the sense of supporting globalization, macroeconomic, anti-inflation, probity, and austerity. But now, more specifically, the democratic party election strategy has been in the past aimed at attracting better off suburbs and professionals. And you spent a lot of time talking about that. And you even quote James Medlock, who looks like either Paul Krugman plagiarized him or the reverse. Can you tell which one said it first, what they said? (laughs) I think it's either it was a I'm surprised that nobody caught that because, yeah, I did. What, I don't, yeah, I did too. And I don't know whether Krugman, because that, that line from Medlock was cited in lots of places. So I don't know how an editor didn't catch that. Um, right. And so the, the line we're talking about is the era of the era of big government is over, is over. And I love it. So let's say it again. The era of the era of big government is over, is over. <laughs> it's a double parenthesis. And, and you have to love it, folks, the double parenthesis. I do. So let's yeah. talk about it. So do you think that that's the case? Okay, so yeah, this is where I think I depart somewhat from the most exuberant analysts of of the situation. But before I get to that dissent, I want to mark where there is a significant change, in my view, from previous administrations. I, I, I take the point that this is a significantly larger and bolder and more partisan bill than the Obama stimulus, that mm-hmm. and that the kind of policy landscape and the macroeconomic worldview, if you will, of Bidenism is significantly different from Obamaism. It's bolder. It's larger. It's more generous with the budget. With de- it's less concerned about deficits, at least for now. And it's worlds worlds apart. It's it's. It, I think it is worlds apart from Clintonism, where the real effort there was that that's the era of big government is over. And I think I agree with that formulation from Medlock that whatever we can say about Clintonism in the 1990s as a, as an actual effort to sort of beat back the New Deal liberalism and wrench it to the center in order to sort of maintain the Democratic Party's economic credibility in the post-Reagan era when all of the macroeconomic headwinds were pushing against deficit spending and against generous welfare states. That era is clearly over. We're in a different era. I think where the dispute is what era we're in and what are the consequences. And I think this is where a lot of the most exuberant liberals seem to think that we're back in, we're on the knocking on the doorstep of the New Deal or potential. And that's where, you know, those, it's become frankly a cliche. 
I think I said this, that every Democrat who president who passes a bill be, has to become compared to Franklin Roosevelt. And it's, it's really silly because there's nothing like the structural changes of the New Deal in terms of its relationship with capital and labor. You know, the Wagner Act, which almost overnight doubled unionization in America. Nothing in this bill anyway is comparable to the, you know, foundational and durable welfare, you know, social insurance programs like Social Security. Nothing in this bill extends beyond a single year. So I think we are in a more free spending era for both parties, I would add. And I think it's people who say, oh, the Republicans always spend when they're in office and then they become the party of retrenchment when they're out of office. Yes, that's true. But nothing that George Bush did, and he was not a small government president, but nothing that George Bush did compared to the CARES Act. If you really want to talk about a macroeconomic leap into the dark, that bill, that $2.2 trillion bill, which was not quite so targeted towards the poor and and working and middle classes as this bill, but was larger and in some measures did more via the superdole, that has no precedent under in the era of, of Reagan and Bush. Not none at all. So we're collectively, both parties are in a more free spending zone. I think we should acknowledge that. So but where that leads is does that mean that the Democratic Party then has become a vehicle for New Deal style reform of capitalism? I haven't seen the evidence yet. I don't think this bill offers it. I want to jump in there because, first of all, just a comment on that, that it took the pandemic to kind of release this energy or or at least to make it an excuse to come forward with these bigger packages. As you remember, Mitch McConnell told his party to just hold their nose and vote for it. You know, And, and then on the other hand, you said that there's something that a lot of people who are very excited about the American Rescue Plan have not really stressed, and that is that everything expires after a year. But what that makes me think of is you remember that so many Republicans were absolutely opposed to the $600 weekly supplement, which was higher, as you mentioned, than many uh, low-wage workers were earning. It's because once they're used to it, how do they go back to lower wages? They didn't say that in exactly those words, but it also raises the question about once families get actual cash child allowance, which only makes them just like every other European country has been, you know, for what, decades, how will they ever let that expire? And it's sort of like what Clinton said to Obama, just sign the the ACA, because once it's there, they can't get rid of it. Well, I don't know. I'd like to hear what you have to say about that. But I really what I want you to also give us a little bit uh, more on, because I think this is what is so important about your analysis, is that you show who are the actual agency of this new change. And we'll go into that in a second, but just go ahead on the first pass on what I just, the other part. <laughs> oh yeah. On the child bill. Well, look, I mean, this has gotten a lot of hype, I would say in the press and, and some people on the, not just the liberal left, but on what I would describe as a socialist left are pretty excited about it. I mean, I think, you know, Matt Brunig and the people's policy project, his think, think tank has been pushing ideas like this for a while. It may be that they, that he even had some direct influence over in some features of some of these policy ideas that are circulating now. Clearly, I think you're right. And I think in, in fairness to the, the liberal hyperbolists, when, when you talk them down from the tree, what they say is, oh, yeah, we're not so excited about this bill in and of itself. W- what we're excited about is what this bill suggests the Democrats can now are willing to be able to do. The fact that they push the bill this big means to us that they're going to be able to do all these other permanent things. And that, in fact, as you point out, 
the best way to get a big program in is not to storm the city walls, but to drag it in like a Trojan horse in the night. And then suddenly it's there and the Republicans are forced to cut it rather than Democrats being forced to extend it. So that's fair. And it may well be. And if that's what the Democrats do and they do extend this bill and make this a permanent or semi-permanent feature of the landscape, then that's a, that's a real win. And we'll notch that notch in Joe Biden's belt. I just am not at all sure that where the political headwinds will be six months from now or whenever that decision is made. And I don't think, you know, I don't know. I don't think it's the job of the left to sort of pre-congratulate an administration on, on achieving that. It, it may work, and I hope it does. Second thing, though, clearly on the scale of this, it is important that it's better designed, as we said before, that it doesn't omit the very poorest. It's good that it's a check. It's still pretty small. Let's be realistic. Paul Krugman in his column was kind of going through, wow, this child thing is the most revolutionary element. It's a real expansion of the welfare state. Da, 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 da. And then, but will it affect workers and will it d- discourage people from work? Well, actually, it can't because comparing it to the AFDC bill from the Great Society, it's about, you know, it's. Mm-hmm. it's that was uh, an important point of yours, by the way. Go ahead. Yeah. Much smaller. I mean, this is not $3,000 a year per kid is not, not only is it not enough to live on, it's going to help around the edges, but it's. It's not going to transform the the basically the economic capacity of these workers. It's not going to grant them that much more leverage in the market. It's still a kind of workfare, basically, in comparison to the programs of the 60s, which were like, hey, we'll just pay people to raise their children. That's not what this is doing. Really well put, uh, Matt Carp. And of course, we know that it was Clinton that ended that program welfare as we know it. And it led to, you know, a a, a huge increase in poverty. So, all right. But having said that, after living through all these decades of such austerity, I have to be, I guess, counted among those who go, well, wow, this isn't this isn't a whole loaf of bread, but these crumbs aren't so bad. (laughs) And then, yeah. But the deeper point that you make and I think that we I want to spend time on now is you talk about the upper middle class suburban professionals who are the agency of this incipient revolution and that the Democratic Party could be summed up in that infamous Schumer statement to the effect that the Democratic Party intended to sacrifice working class votes in Western Pennsylvania for better off suburban professionals on the main line. So did that strategy work? Are these the Democrats that finally got Biden in? And that's to what extent are the liberals uh, better off suburban professionals to whom the Democrats are appealing, willing to support a program, broadly speaking, that completes uh, Roosevelt and Johnson's New Deal and say Great Society, updating it for now. So can you talk about that? In this respect, so, you know, obviously, in terms of who's in power in the Democratic Party and who voted for the Democrats, according to exit polls in the House of Representatives, all of that I want to go into. Yeah, this is a big article that I did for Jacobin just in the last print issue about where our politics are and, you know, what I've been talking about, what some political scientists call class dealignment which has been a long-running thing all across the basically the industrialized world since the 1960s, if not earlier in some ways, where parties of the working class or the Democrats never really were that, but parties that had attracted the significant class-aligned vote, like the Democrats in the, in the era of, of from Roosevelt to Johnson, have started to bleed those voters either to the right or to non-participation. 
and meanwhile have compensated for that. These kind of, you know, old workers or socialists or labor or the Democratic Party have compensated by winning more and more managers and professionals and especially, especially the highly educated. So this has been happening for a long time, but it's really accelerated in the United States since Trump. And in the 2016, 2018, and 2020 have seen a sort of a massive acceleration of this class alignment, which it means that at this point, after, you know, the process has gone on and on and on, by 2020, the working class, however you want to define it by some combination of education, income, occupation, is obviously racially divided, as, as is usually the case in, in U.S. history, unfortunately, but also is divided by party, almost down the middle at this point. And I guess for me, this is a worrying trend in the most meta sense for those who are looking to the Democratic Party to be a vehicle, never mind of socialist transformation, but even of really muscular social democratic reform. And so a lot of the people who are less worried have been very excited by, okay, Biden did the big stimulus. That shows that actually, look, the, this new coalition, it can deliver the goods. And, you know, sure, Biden won fewer workers than Obama, but he's going to do more for workers than Obama. So maybe these coalitions don't really matter very much. Maybe, you know, what really matters is the ideological inclinations of, of the party leadership. And the truth is, some add, these suburban, largely professional class voters are willing to play a part in pushing for economic economic reform from the left. So, yeah, I mean, all these narratives have some truth to them. What I want to say is not that the new Democratic Party in, in this sort of the Biden coalition, which is, you know, decreasingly working class and, and increasingly, you know, suburbanized and educated and even, yes, comfortable or, or in some cases affluent. I'm not saying that they're not going to be able to achieve any they're not going to be able to pass a good budget. I don't think that was ever the premise of this critique or this worry, which is a more longer term, medium term kind of worry. Because clearly, yeah, because of the pandemic, because of the economic crash, for a number of reasons, there is more appetite for spending. We knew that before Biden was elected. You know, as we said, anyone who followed the CARES Act knew that that was in the water. But we have to reclaim that word structural. You know, Bernie Kratz, like myself, maybe made eye rolled a little bit at Elizabeth Warren's, you know, big structural change. But I think that phrase is not inapt. And I think if you're interested in, as I think anyone who calls themselves a democratic socialist or anyone on the left should be in actual structural change that transforms the relations of social relations, if not of production, at least of power, at least of some degree of redistribution that isn't just a few nice crumbs, but offers some real reform of the vast inequalities, not just of sort of material condition, but of opportunity, of access, of democratic punching power, anything like that. And to do that, we need to claw back the power and the, the resources of capital through basically increasing the power of labor unions and making structural changes in the welfare state. That is Medicare for all. That is something like a job guarantee or a basic income or however you want to do it, some sort of much more basic floor for our society that will really empower workers. Basically, those three prongs, I mean, you could throw in the Green New Deal, you know, major action on climate. Those four pillars, if you like, are what we need and nothing less than that. And nothing in this bill has changed my sense that the Democrats are not really angling, interested in doing that. And I worry that with their coalition, the voters that support them aren't interested in either bearing the tax burden or accepting a new power landscape between workers and bosses that would come with this kind of regime. So I just don't know how you get from here to there with this coalition. 
Well, I want to go a little bit even further into it, Matt Carp, in the last minutes that we have, because I think what you've just said neatly ties together the two articles that we're actually talking about. The politics of the second gilded age, but the first one is, no, Joe Biden won't give us social democracy. Because what you've just laid out is how, while this is a giant program that really does lift the poor, the poorest people who've always been left out before it is not the same thing as the kind of structural social democratic politics. And I think in this case, Matt Carpet really helps to be an historian of the late 19th century because it gives you some insight into the other sort of populist period, but also into the rise later on of, of you know, the labor movement and the impact that that had on what the New Deal really was. And so I want to just go back to our listeners really, I guess, clearly understand it. And that is class dealignment, but it's also, you know, this notion that education is the new proxy for class. So you have college educated and above versus not college educated as equivalent of the professionals versus the workers. And so in your politics of a second gilded age, you can also find that on Jacobin by Matt Carp. You talk about the extent to which the working class supported the Democratic Party and what happened to the white working class. And you lay it all out. And so you also say how much they didn't support it and to what degree. And then you you talk a little bit about identity and the trajectory of black and brown working class. So could you kind of just go over that part of it? Because I think it's really important. Yeah, I mean, that article was really just kind of a deep dive into the election results. It's a little bit of the exit polls, but really mostly about looking at individual places and looking at county and then especially precinct results to get a sense of like how different communities were voting. Their more systematic analysis will await. And we, we've already seen bits of it by people who are more, you know, have more quantitative skills than me. But if you just zoom in on a few of the places that I looked at, and the New York Times has done some maps, frankly, on this too. You can see if you look at Chicago, for instance, the places that swung to Biden were overwhelmingly the genteel I don't even want to say upper middle class, the very rich parts of sort of Lincoln Park and the the Tony areas of Chicago, then the formerly moderate or even Republican leaning white collar suburban collar counties. And the places that swung to Trump, in some cases significantly, especially were the sort of Mexican-American neighborhoods in Chicago's west side. And then in a less dramatic movement, but still a notable movement, some of the basically black neighborhoods on the south side. Again, these are still areas that are overwhelmingly democratic, so you shouldn't get it twisted. But the trend is, and this is what several democratic consultants even, you know, somebody like, there's this guy, David Shore, who's been getting a lot of press lately. He has made this argument himself that even this racial minorities that the Republican Party often doesn't seem at all interested in winning over, given its own kind of flirtation or full-on embrace of a kind of white nationalist politics, they're still winning over, especially Latino workers. And and to some extent, a lot of Asian immigrant communities actually swung hard to the right, too. You can see that in California. And maybe even a handful of, of Black foreign working class communities. So what's going on there? And why are the Democrats not connecting with these voters? Uh, to me, that is worrisome. Again, do, does it mean tomorrow that that's going to prevent a good bill from passing Congress? Not necessarily. But I think it's a worrisome trend, especially when at the state level, the coalition, this new Democratic coalition, which still has you know a base of non-white workers who are still mostly Democrat, and then these sort of new college-educated, mostly white professionals, I worry that this coalition has shown itself, whatever its intentions, unable to sort of back progressive taxation. I mean, you saw this in, in some of the propositions in California. You saw it in Illinois. In a funny way, 
ballot initiatives have had more luck when they're kind of, you know, the, the Florida $15 minimum wage agreement got a ton of support from working class white and Latino voters who voted for Trump. And so I worry that, you know, the Democratic Party's refusal, inability to win over these voters, kind of splitting the working class in this sense is depriving, in effect, our side, the side of egalitarian reform of voters whose material interests actually, you know, and often political behavior actually correspond to a deeper structural change. And we're losing some of those voters because politics is being arranged on a largely cultural and effective axis. We're losing some of those voters who don't share those cultural values, not even values necessarily, who don't share that the same kind of cultural style. Sometimes it's is that superficial, I think, in favor of voters who might talk a good game, but ultimately have no, you know, material or deep ideological commitment to change. Really good, Matt Carp. Just finally, because it's an important analysis, and I guess in the end of your politics of a second gilded age, you kind of go into the dilemma in electoral terms for, say, the Sanders AOC type politics that you've just laid out. And what's missing, and you also lay out, of course, that this change is not just happening in the U.S., but across the world. And you might even track it to the lack of the organized strength of the working class. You know, maybe you could just end with that. So what is the dilemma in electoral terms for those of us who support a more, let's say, robust left social democratic, democratic socialist politics along the lines of, you know, what we'd hoped would happen had Bernie. <laughs> somehow. Yeah. I mean, without Bernie, it's tricky. I think it's going to be a long road. I mean, part of the Gilded Age piece is, is pretty pessimistic about where electoral politics, what the electoral options are in electoral politics for the left. I think right now, a lot of people aren't so pessimistic. They, they're they saying, hey, look, we just want a bunch of state legislative seats in, you know, in Brooklyn. We're electing you know municipal and city council leaders all over the country. I think that's great. And that social should absolutely keep contending these kind of the natural home turf of the new constituent. You know, by the way, they're winning votes, not largely from low-income workers, but from college-educated folks like me, basically, here in Brooklyn. <laughs> I now have a socialist state senator, Javari Bridgeport, who I campaigned for. So that's great. But I think we shouldn't kid ourselves that we on the left, on the post-Bernie, on the AOC-style left, really have the answers to class dealignment any better than the Joe Biden Democratic Party does, because we don't. And I think it would be a shame my caution for that style of politics, for the sort of squad style of politics going forward, my, my worry is that it will attach itself to the kind of progressive wing of the Democratic Party and become isolated among the already converted culturally and sort of affectively aligned wing of educated folk and will will lose the ability to sort of do what would Bernie initially seem to promise that he wanted to do, which was speak to a broader working class outside of that kind of partisan identity. So I worry that that's where things are headed, not just for the Democrats, but for the left wing of the Democrats. And that I think it would be a shame. I'd like to see more of our left wing leaders demonstrate a degree of independence from the Democrats and kind of return, at least show some interest in stoking class politics outside of partisan politics, rather than just kind of feuding with Republicans for fundraising money, which is what a lot of progressives do. And that's fine because they're making a different calculus. They think the Democratic Party is going to be able to deliver, so they're going to be as nice to the Democrats as they can. I just worry about the longer term consequences. 
Matt Carp, thanks so much. We're going to have to leave it there. But what you just did at the very end is open up a, a whole bunch of possibilities for future interviews, which I hope to take advantage of. I want to thank you for joining us again on Beneath the Surface. Matt is an associate professor of history at Princeton University and a contributing editor to Jacobin Magazine. We've been talking about uh, two of his articles in Jacobin. Uh, one of the recent one that is called No, Joe Biden Won't Give Us Social Democracy. And the other one was The Politics of a Second Gilded Age. And Matt's book, This Vast Southern Empire, Slaveholders at the Helm of American Foreign Policy, is something else you can pick up when we look forward to his next one. Matt, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Susie. It was great. Thanks. And I'm Susie Wiseman. Don't go away. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Very pleased to have Emil Dreitzer back with us. And we're going to be discussing his latest memoir, In the Jaws of the Crocodile, just published by the University of Wisconsin Press. I should just say that Emil has been with us for the discussion of almost all of his books, perhaps not every single, but I think so. I think most of them beginning, oh, many years ago, uh, I think 40 years ago or so with Forbidden Laughter, Soviet Underground Humor, which now I understand better having read all of your memoirs, even though at that point I knew about all the jokes. So having said all of that, we're going to be discussing the memoir in which Emil recounts the ways that he became a journalist, why he became a journalist and how he became a journalist in the Soviet Union in the period between Stalin and during Khrushchev. And of course, he carried on later under Brezhnev. And What's important is that we're going to talk about why he took the detour through satire and not only why, but why that was the best path. And then we're also going to be discussing the new Andrzej Konchalovsky film, Dear Comrade, about an important strike and a massacre in the city of Novocherkask in southern Russia in 1962. Everything about that strike and the response of the authorities tells you more about the nature of the Soviet Union than volumes of historical and political analyses. And I think in a kind of parallel way, the form of satire also does that, and Emil is a master of it. We couldn't have a better interpreter for both. So I just want to welcome you, Emil, and just tell a little bit more. Emil comes from Odessa, which is in the Ukraine. And it was previously, we talked about Odessa before the uh, Russian Revolution, more than 100 years ago now, as in the Pale of Settlement, which is the area where Jews could live. Emil began his writing career as a freelancer, contributing satirical articles to leading Soviet uh, magazines and periodicals like Lit Gazette or Literary Gazette, um, Izvestia, Youth and Crocodile, or Crocodile, which is what we're going to talk a lot about. He also worked in radio and in film, but eventually he was blacklisted in the former Soviet Union for writing an article that was, I guess, a little too critical of an important official. And then in 1975, he made his way to the United States, and we've covered some of that. At first, Emil lived in L.A., where he got his Ph.D. in literature, Russian literature, from UCLA, and he spent the next long period of his life in New York, where we're speaking to him, and was professor at uh, Hunter College. He's now professor emeritus. And as I said, he's written a lot of other books. This is the second in a trilogy. And we've talked about the first and the third. This one is called In the Jaws of the Crocodile. 
The first one is Shush, Growing Up Jewish Under Stalin, a memoir. And then the last one is called Farewell Mama Odessa, which again, continues his life story. And we're going to look forward to many more. And having said all of that, I'm going to go back to the fact that he wrote this great book called Forbidden Laughter, Soviet underground humor. And in any of Emile's books that you read, and you should, they're filled with jokes, but the jokes are all incredibly pointed. So Emile, welcome back to Jacobin Radio. Thank you. Thank you. It's nice to be with you again. Congratulations. I have to say, I also think of you as the irrepressible and indefatigable writer. I always know there's going to be another one in the pipeline. I don't know how many years I have to wait, usually not too many. You write books while others are just thinking about maybe a title or or a format of a book and yours just appears. So you are irrepressible. But now we learn in this memoir that this is something that you started very young, right? And I had wanted to start with the film, but I think we're going to start with the memoir since I gave such a long introduction of it, because it really, you know, kind of gives you the idea of like how you came to be a writer. And that perhaps we should go back and talk about what this subtitle Soviet memoir means. The crocodile is talking about the name of this very well-known Soviet satirical journal. And for most American readers, I guess maybe they don't know about the role of satire in uh, not only the Soviet Union, but in the Eastern Bloc. And I should also say that comes with that, the special rapport that existed between writer and reader, as they all read between the lines of every joke and every little phrase. So maybe you can talk about what the role of satire is and whether it's a contradiction in terms. All right. I wanted to actually illustrate the fact that uh, one of the misconceptions about the Soviet uh, system, uh, among other, is that like Soviet satire, people think, oh, how these two terms kind of a contradiction in terms. In reality, it was not. There was a certain role that the satire had to play in the Soviet system. And many Soviet newspapers and magazines published satirical columns called filieton, okay? Uh, there were satirical programs on local and uh, central uh, TV stations. Also, there, you already mentioned the magazine Crocodile, which was um, extremely popular. Just to show you, to illustrate how popular it was, I'll compare with American satirical magazines. That was going to be one of my questions, but yes, <laughs> go ahead. Okay. So National Lampoon, for example, right? The peak of its popularity was October 74. So one million copies monthly came out on that month, right? Now, the Mad Magazine, <laughs> and the peak was in October 74, and two million came out monthly, right? Crocodile Magazine. A, it was published almost immediately after the end of Civil War in 1922 and continued all the way to the end of the Soviet regime. Now, it was every 10 days <laughs> an issue. That means three issues a month, six and around 20 million copies monthly. So obviously the question is, wow, right? (laughs) (laughs) Now, besides that, there was a 1961 with the already Khrushchev coming to power. The satire got even larger uh, kind of opportunities. The most film produced all union satirical magazine, The Week. It's fitil in Russian. Fitil is like a, to give somebody a good working over. That's what that means. In other words, satirical intent of it. 
And it was extremely popular. It was shown before any teacher film, any movie theater, it was shown. It was very, very, very popular. So that's by itself shows extreme popularity of satire. So obviously the question will come, and I'm, I'm sure what was the need for that? Obviously the system, highly controlled system would not allow, but I think that uh, if just briefly, if we just look at the origin of it to begin with, it started really proliferation after World War II, but even before that. But it is at least known that publicly, publicly, Joseph Stalin in 1952 already said, we need our Soviet Gogols and Saldogov Shidrin, extremely famous Russian satirists of 19th century. So what was the need? I wanted to briefly talk about the, what was the task of the Soviet satire. And this is important, to fight, quote, separate shortcomings that obstruct our movement forward to the shining heights of communism. That's almost satire in itself. <laughs> well, separate shortcomings. That was important, not systemic. And now I'll show a little bit. Now, what are your targets? For example, rank and file employees, poor work discipline of people taking too long, let's say, smoke breaks and so on on the work. And the Crocodile magazine on the cover has <laughs> showed this uh, from time to time. Poor workmanship. It was the director of a plant fighting the quality control inspector for the approval of the product, you know, while the, it was really shady products often uh, came out from Soviet plants. Theft at the workplace. People got their salaries were so low that there was no other way for many to supplement their income by stealing whatever they can from their places. And if they uh, got caught, the consequences were pretty dire. I have a friend who absolutely, absolutely was lift, he was working in a veterinary store and he was saving some of every bag of feed right. for the animals, and he ended up spending ten years in. In, 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 in time, people get, could get uh, years in, in prison for nothing, for next to for being late to work for peasants to pick up something from the field they worked on to bring home to feed their family. Now, cheating in the store was... <laughs> That's was, the one I'm talking absolutely, about. Absolutely. Yeah. That was one of the, probably the most frequent target of the service satire, the cheating in the stores. Now, not only that, the low and middle level management, but also criticized, for example, for bureaucratic merry-go-round, for bribery, when they send you from office to office, but right. nothing ever happens. Exactly. <laughs> Bribery, you, it was known that unless you lubricate the system, it doesn't work. <laughs> you have to lubricate it with this. Fraud, in order to get bonuses, monthly bonuses. Again, fighting again to survival. Most of the time fighting because of the low salaries. People had to uh, somehow make it sure that they can get the bonuses because the bonus will come if you fulfill a plan. Cooking the books for that purpose. <laughs> it was kind of a, a prevalent occupation. Mismanagement also. To create an atmosphere of kind of intolerance to mismanagement. For example, you know, the, the cover of one of the Crocodile magazine shows a man using the new technology, especially implementing of new technology was so well behind. So he uses the whole, <laughs> the whole box with new technology as simply as a hammer. Oh, I found a good use for it and so on, making fun of this and so on. And short, just even of item first necessity. And this is the show, as you see, one of the uh, Crocodile Magazine's uh, <laughs> cover shows a, 
during surgical operation, when the doctor says scalpel, the nurse replies to him, they promise to deliver it in the third quarter of the year. <laughs> While obviously she needs to, Right, he's already uh, under uh, anesthetic. Right. Okay. Industrial pollution also, how uh, skillfully the directors avoid any control over uh, pollution. Abuse of power also have to be clear. Obviously, it's only about, again, I repeat, low and middle rank management, nothing of nomenclatura, nothing of people who really had a big uh, power. So you had to be really skillful in the way that satire was constructed so that you took aim at stories that would reveal what was going on without pinpointing those at the top who were responsible. Right. But oftentimes it's just, let's say, a generic, let's say, cartoon about a boss who shouts, uh, high-headedness, rudeness, shouts, uh, not talks to his subordinate, but shouts at them and so on. Or using your office uh, to your benefits, uh, whatever the cartoons of Little Wolf says to the teacher who's a rabbit, saying, well, if you fail me now, my daddy will eat your life. Okay, so obviously, <laughs> little so, wolf is a big wolf is a father. So, or even uh, in the office. By the way, we talk about sexual harassment that is kind of the theme of of today, seemingly in America. But it was way back in at the time of Soviet time. Also, there was a criticism of bosses who are keeping employees. Let's see, on this one, the manager thinks, well, well, which of these two secretaries should I let go? <laughs> one is young and sexy, another one not so young and not so sexy. So yeah, which would be considered inappropriate now and exactly. hardly anywhere exactly. about it. But yeah. yeah, well, let me just ask you about that. First, at one point, Emil, you said that Crocodile had a circulation of 20 million per month. And we right. should let that sink in because for much of the period of the Soviet Union, the population was slightly larger than the U.S., but, you know, you could say they're kind of similar. So there's no other satirical weekly or monthly that could even begin to match that. It starts to tell you something about it. But on the other hand, it also tells you that it's a literate society and people read a lot. And, you know, my first time I went there, I was a guest on a radio show because I did a radio show in the U.S. that was about workers. And when they asked me, how many people listen to your radio show? And I said, well, it has the largest signal west of the Mississippi. And they said, well, how many people listen to it? And I didn't want to really <laughs> say, well, you know, it's very different. It's a non-commercial, you know, public radio station. And then they told me that theirs, which went out every week, reached the entire Soviet Union and had an audience of about, say, 320 million and I thought that's just impossible anywhere else. It's impossible. <laughs> and having said all of that, going back to satire and what you're also seeing is that it became a device as you're showing in your PowerPoint that the listeners can't see. It's illustrated throughout your book that it's, it's a device to poke fun at and at the same time level criticism at the way of life, let's say, and the system in all of its absurdity. And so I guess one thing to ask is whether or not there was, you know, contrary to popular myth, whether or not this uh, represents some kind of freedom of the press in the Soviet Union. And I should also add that this goes far beyond what most people think of when they think of freedom of the press there, which were the letters to the editor, where people were allowed to vent, you know, and then they have wrote the letter and of course then never organize about it. So that was that, you know, and the letters would be published or not. But satire, you could say, is a very sophisticated form 
of criticism. And not only did it exist, but it takes this form of highly vocal and biting even satirical attacks. So what was allowed and what were the limits of what was allowed and what and whom could you criticize in the okay. Soviet media? That's a very good question. However, I wanted just to add, I, all what the questions you raised, why satire was so much needed. First and foremost, obviously, satire was used in places where other means couldn't be, just to create a moral atmosphere of intolerance to certain things and so on. Secondly, and something that I actually, frankly, I admit I came to it much later in my life, only already when I was in, in the United States, actually almost recently in a year or so, I stumbled on some record that I could not almost like defeated my, my attitude toward my previous work that I thought, oh, after all, I never said hallelujah to the Soviet regime. I always criticized it and so on. But here is what really was found with one of my colleagues, that back in Stalin's time, the hidden task of open criticism of economic targets in the Soviet press was to create false facade to ah. hide true military capabilities. And that's what in 1930s, Joseph Stalin advised one of his ministers, Lazar Kaganovich, who was in charge of the railroad. And he said the following, I quote here, see to it that Gudok and Dacia, means the newspaper that he was in charge of, and other newspaper print as much as possible about our sloppiness, deficiencies, glitches, shoddy work, and on. We don't want those dopes abroad to see the forest for the trees. Our figures and achievements are to be kept secret, while our petty problems, of which we have plenty, of course, should be glaringly apparent. Soviet chaos, transportation in ruins, abominable industrial output. The it's worst. obvious what he's doing this for. <laughs> yeah. And now Kaganovich said, with photographs? <laughs> and Stalin says, well, why not? In our position, a subtle policy is needed. You can't win if you don't cheat. Okay? So yeah. that kind of explains the tolerance of it, why it was. At the same time, it was highly controlled. To answer your question, here is what was the no-no for Soviet satire. What was the bottom line? All faults of the socialist economy had to be shown as being only sporadic, not yeah. systemic. Okay? To avoid public panic, no press reports on shortages of medicine, which was always <laughs> place plain. No party apparatus is to be criticized by any paper other than Pravda, the instrument of the party central committee. Okay? No criticism of Soviet foreign policy, forget it. Not a line. Okay? Now, some territorial, and I write it in the book, in conversation with one of my colleagues who actually told me that he could not write anything satirical, filiaton and so on, about certain areas in Moscow. For example, in Brezhnev time, the Moscow Bauman area, Perov area, or Krasnodar. Why? Because <laughs> the heads of party organization were personal friends of Brezhnev. So that means out of <laughs> no criticism was allowed, allowed whatsoever. Now, but what will happen if a journalist oversteps the boundaries of permitted inadvertently, right? That happened to me as well. Later on, we'll talk about mm -hmm. it. Depending on the gravity of his or her mistake, he could be reprimand, it could be firing, 
It could be the editor-in-chief will be summoned to the Bureau of Propaganda of the Senate Committee asking questions and so on. Many, many times you have to go through a process. And here I will shortly describe the process. For example, let's say I wrote a piece, right? First, it goes self-censorship. means you know beforehand what you can or cannot write right. about. Second, that exists here too, of course. Well, yeah. yes. But then, then you give to the department editor. He reads it and sees whatever. Then managing editor of the paper is reads it. Then editor-in-chief. Then editorial board. So in other words, by the time it appears, it's totally safe. <laughs> you see what I mean? You cannot make mistakes. That's primarily uh, how the system works. That's why satire was existed in the Soviet time. But, you know, normally there's, of course, there was Glavlid, and that was the Bureau of Censorship, and that existed for literature as well as almost everything that was published. How did the censorship work with satire, or was it there? And were you aware, for example, I'm certain that you were, but, you know, when uh, your articles were uh, sanitized or cleansed or, or just not printed? Well, first of all, the editor usually... Sometimes, and that happened, I may talk later on, sometimes I'll come with my own idea what to write about. And that's actually, I'm a little bit running ahead of myself, how I got in trouble. But obviously, most of the time, the editor gives you assignments, I mean, gives you documents based on which you can write a satirical piece. For example, when I started my work, uh, you probably see Onces. I never thought about becoming a satirical writer to begin with. It's uh, a great uh, story. Let me just interrupt for a second. I'm speaking with Emil Dreitzer, and we're talking about his latest memoir called In the Jaws of the Crocodile, which is a crocodile, which is, of course, the satirical magazine that existed in the Soviet Union and that Emil wrote for. And he's about to tell the story of onesies, which is prominent in the book. Go ahead. Yeah. So in Moscow, I brought some lyrical uh, kind of a piece uh, to the newspaper because they, they printed work of our readers, things like that. And I really, as a young writer, I wanted to test myself. Am I good or not? And so on. And so he read it. He said, no, it's nice and so on. But you have kind of an accent. What kind of accent do you have in, in Russian, of course? <laughs> Uh, and I say, I'm from Odessa. Oh, then why would you not write for us a satirical piece if you get on? Because it was assumption. It, I don't know in America, it probably would be closest you come to, you know, are you from Bush Belt? Something of that sort. <laughs> that is assumed that you have sense of humor, then why wouldn't you write? So that's, he gave me a letter that many, many, many people were writing to the paper with criticism about the poor quality of goods, especially. In this case, it's a woman's letter that she, she came to the store, you know, about the poor quality of the onsies for, for her little child. So what I came up with saying that uh, the sales clerk asked her, what kind of temperament your baby have? Phlegmatic or sanguinic? Is he choleric? And so, what it has to do with it, she said. Well, listen, we have only onesies for quiet babies. Because if the baby is really energetic and so on, the piece very quickly will be, uh, will be not, not good anymore. I have to say that just along this line, the first time I went to the Soviet Union expecting gray and drab everywhere and was shocked at how vital it was, and also just going on the metro, seeing how well-dressed everyone was, and you go down and look at the department stores, and they had all this high fashion 
in the windows. But when I talked to people, they said they would never buy anything. They would sew and make their own because you buy something that's gorgeous. And the first time you try it on, the sleeve falls off or once, you know, <laughs> one sleeve is a lot shorter than the other. So go ahead. Back to onesies. <laughs> no, poor, poor. That's how the whole thing started. And obviously, after shortly after that, I, I didn't know myself that I actually had the ability to make fun of things like that. And, uh, you know, that was the start of my satirical career. I was starting for writing also for Crocodile soon after and in other places. Yeah. Well, maybe you should just uh, tell the listeners, uh, Emil Dreitzer, was it your choice to become a satirist in the Soviet Union? And and did you know that this is something that you could be good at? Or And what role, I guess, coming from Odessa, as you know, <laughs> what role did that play in priming you to become a satirist? Actually, uh, th- that's a good question, because uh, I never thought of it. Obviously, when you grew up in a city, and in a certain environment, you take everything as normal, as for granted, as almost like standard, but it was not. Odessa is located on the south of Ukraine, on the north of part of uh, the Black Sea. And it was uh, founded by Catherine the Great back in the uh, end of 19th, uh, 18th century as a place for, to have a warm port to sell grain to European countries. And Jews were invited to come over. So very quickly, not only Jews, people of many, to begin with, the whole city was built by French architects, actually the mayor of Odessa, if you see the, the famous Pachomkin stairs on top. There is a, you write about this in, I think, Shush, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, this is, uh, I describe it in uh, Farewell Mama Odessa. Yeah, uh, that's it. And the picture, the, the cover of the Farewell Mama Odessa, this is the, the monument of the Duke de Richelieu. You see, the French. So there were people of all the nationalities, French, Italian, German, and uh, obviously Ukrainians, Russian Jews, and so on. So humor was inherent in this. It's pretty much like even Mark Twain talked about, actually, in his uh, Innocence Abroad uh, book about Odessa, that he found that it's so much American city, not not (laughs) Russian, because of this multinationality of the place, because humor actually... Later on, when I became a scholar of humor, I realized the role of humor is to lubricate relationship between different ethnic groups who have to live together. So with humor, you can approach things much more softer than with straightforward uh, kind of a criticism and so on. So therefore, in Odessa, everybody was spoken kind of ironic style, was normal. <laughs> and that's how it came about. So it was. But would you feel as well as a writer there, even as a writer of satire, that you had a rapport that your reader perfectly understood what you were getting at, even though it wasn't written in the way that it would be straightforward, let's say? Uh, Yeah. Well, if I may quickly go through what really happened to me is that I came to that kind of writing only after I ran into trouble to write about things that I thought obvious and why wouldn't I criticize it? Especially when the editor-in-chief of the Crocodile magazine published it. I I showed in my display of this uh, uh, big satirical article I published in Crocodile in uh, 1971. Uh, Shut up, Scatterbrain. I saw a play in provincial town and it was so awful, so vulgar. And so I came back home and I wrote a piece (laughs) I wrote to the editor of The Crocodile. He loved it. He said, oh, just make it even more attacking. <laughs> and then later on, what we, the scandal was that 
neither I nor he knew that from the period and the, the, the work was going through the editorial process in a couple of months, the author of the play was appointed as the editor-in-chief of the magazine Tear. That means he was nomenclatura, means untouchable for the Minister of Culture. Minister of Culture Furtz at that time, it was a big scandal. And she said, well, 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 it's intolerable anyway. So that's what really uh, was the problem. And I thought this, my writing of <laughs> satire, that was the end of it because the magazine wanted to pretend that they don't know me, despite the fact that they published me for six or seven years. But then what really happened, and that, that to answer your question, is that, that that's exactly what you talk about, about the highly literary society. Uh, what really happened is that to avoid political censorship, the Esopiancist satire was used even from back in, in Cyrus' time. It means readership used to read between lines, not necessarily, in other words, something innocent, but between them there is a hint on something much less innocent <laughs> than it is. So it was that, and actually it happened in the end of 1968 when the a literary gazette opened the 12 chairs club of the literary gazette and they start publishing things like i want just to give you an example how you you can use an innocent format to say rather daring things under censorship for example they have like children's room rubric right in this children's room they say it was known that there was a shortage of oranges in the country very difficult to buy <laughs> so they put it as a children's verse if you want an orange kit, if you truly have this need, get a Play-Doh in a store, make an orange or make more. Okay? <laughs> or scarcity of food for population. It was, again, very for children. If your bowl is scarce of soup, get yourself a bigger loop. Now, looking through that loop, you will see a lot of soup. Okay? <laughs> so well, how you can pretend it? Now, it's something I wanted to say that was... Uh, a satirical piece was published in, I think that was the top of unthinkable attack between lines again. The short story was published by one of the uh, writers for the Literary Gazette to show, let's say, winter, dark, wind, cold, snow, and uh, a drunkard wants to catch a taxi, which was always difficult. So he sees nearby another man also with stretched hands. And he thinks, my God, he's already frozen. He barely moves. He grabs him, takes him to home, and they fall asleep. And then in the morning, he wakes up and sees he <laughs> pulled a statue from the pedestal. Right. And was a big scandal. Again, I don't think Americans would understand why this scandal. But the Soviets, in every city, has this following, <laughs> as I show on on slide, on the, the uh, sculpture or the, the monument of, of Lenin with the same gesture, with the outstretched hand calling for, obviously, shining communism and so on. But in a way, it was misinterpreted, interpreted that he's trying to just to catch a taxi. So it was a big, big <laughs> scandal. But the fallback, what's important to understand people, that how they got, got away with it. How they, yeah. Very simple. Here's, I'll give you the joke, you know, that I have a collection of uh, Soviet underground humors, and it's one of them that actually explains it. This is 1930s, Stalin's time, right? Rabinovich appears in the Red Square and shouts, down with the dictator, down with the executioner, down with the bloodsucker. 
So obviously, the not time the KGB catches him down the stairs and says, Are you out of your mind, Comrade Rabinovich? Do you even hear what you're saying? And he says, What's the matter, comrades? I'm protesting against that damn Adolf Hitler. <laughs> Gee, who else do you think you have in mind? You understand? <laughs> so in other words, you have the dirty mind, not us. <laughs> and that was the way to do it. So given all of that, Emil, I asked you earlier, what are the limits of satire? And you talked about you can only make fun of things that in a way they wanted to be able to show this absurdity of or middle level and lower level official, but not high official them. So when did you come up against the limits of it personally and what happened? And was that your turning point? Well, but the turning point, as I said, this story about me seeing a play yeah. that was obviously, uh, and it was published, by the way, it was published in this magazine, theater and so on. So in, in other words, seemingly, Nothing was there uh, against the publication of it because it was so tr- nobody really disputed it. But eventually, the crocodile needed to separate from me because that was the blood had to be spilled. <laughs> you understand? So that's right. And but I'm glad that it happened because then I start writing for the Literary Gazette from, uh, and I gave an example of what I wanted to just illustrate this quickly. What I have done in the same kind of a genre of Writing between lines. Uh, I came up with a story. A second. Yeah, here it is. Here it is. Okay, the story. The story is about selling class on the streets of Moscow in summertime, a scene. The most popular drink, I should say, in the summer. Like, but it's here too. Fermented drink is almost as popular as Coca-Cola in America. That's how everybody wants to have. So I wrote a piece and that was published in Literary Gazette that seemingly on the surface of it is absolutely nothing wrong with it, like humorous scene. Everybody can recognize here. there's a cistern of, with class and people standing in line, but then it's just short. Uh, sooner or later, it starts, more people are coming, so the, the sellers say, oh, we, we're about to finish it. Uh, don't, don't let, no, 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 no. For, for everybody to be enough, just add a little bit water. So it's added little water in a short while. What really happened, the line started even longer, that there was almost pure water they would drink instead of class. Okay. So at the end of it, when the inspector comes and he's frightened to the seller, what will happen now that I'm selling for money, water, basically. And he said, well, well, look, it's okay. The most important, you have to do it equally to all people. In other words, people... That critic kind of a satire on people who accept being poor as long as everybody is poor. Nobody else has a class and so on. That was published in Literary Gazette. So that started my career there. And would you say that there was an element of satire there in that story? Of course, that was the element of satire because satire was, again, between lines, not exactly true. You have to. Again, you said yourself, it's a highly literary society. People, the readership of this Club 12 Chairs especially was very high, and almost over a million people read it and often started with these pages of this hidden satire. I was going to ask, uh, there's a lot to go over, and I don't think we're going to have time to go over absolutely everything, Emil Dreitzer, oh, but to sure. let people know that you can get this book in the jaws of the crocodile, and you will laugh and you will think as you go through this Soviet memoir that really kind of, speaks of a different period, but maybe for Americans today doesn't seem so 
odd. <laughs> and, and I wanted to ask you what encounters you had with the KGB and what were the repercussions because of your role as a writer? Actually, I have to say, uh, I was lucky, I would say, but I had three, three runs in with the KGB. One friendly, one intimidating, and one mysterious. Ah. Starting with friendly. A year before I immigrated from the Soviet Union, I got a phone call from my father-in-law saying that his client wants to talk to me. And I was surprised because he was working as a tailor in the Minister of Defense. I thought, my well, God, how? And I was obviously, I was a satirical writer. And so why would a general talk to me? That was impossible. The Soviet Union army was never criticized. Nothing about the army could be printed and so on. And he said, I don't know, you. Two, this is his phone call. I call, I was curious, obviously. The man, I answered the call, and the man, the old man the voice invited me over to his apartment. And it was September 11, 1973. This is how they look like, an old man, and that's what I photographed at that time. When I appeared, that's my, <laughs> when I appeared there, he asked me for my, uh, obviously, journalistic ID that I had. And then he invited me to have some tea, Russian style with jam. And he talked me about his life. And whatever he told me, and what is his life about? He was a Soviet intelligence officer who operated in the West from 1925 all the way to 1937. Mm. And whatever he told me was unprintable at that time in the Soviet Union. Not a word, not a line. So I couldn't understand. Actually, when I came home, I wrote down in my notebook, this is a copy of my notebook, his name, Bistralyotov, is in, in pencil so that I can erase if, if KGB comes after me. <laughs> I would erase his name at least, you know, but it was. But actually, I couldn't understand why he's talking to me, but it happened that 25 years later, when I came to America, <laughs> I started to dig in about in his life. His memoir came out. I went to Moscow, got the material, went to archives in Great Britain, in Rome, in France. And the book came out as, uh, was on your show, I believe. Started from yeah, we talked a lot about this one. <laughs> yeah. So the book came out. Moreover, after that, the, the book came Stalin's out. Stalin's Romeo Spy, it's called. Stalin's Romeo Spy. It was translated, well, it came out a separate edition in, uh, in Great Britain as a paperback. It was translated into Polish language. But more importantly, the new International Spy Museum uh, invited me to give a talk about Bistralyotov. So I came to this museum, I gave a talk, and they made an exhibit. Now, the new building, if you come to the main floor, you will see two main stellas of our two super spies of all time. One is Matahari, mm-hmm. and the second one is Dmitry Bistralyotov. <laughs> so in other words, in my time, nobody knew about him. Now he's world famous and so on. So that I was, was there at, at that talk because I also talked about the spy I was writing about another famous one. So this yes. is really, yeah, go ahead. The, yeah. This is your friendly encounter, right? Friendly which encounter. turned out to be a treasure trove for you right, of right. understanding then, and later writing. In September 1974, about uh, a month or so, less than a month before I immigrated from the Soviet Union, I wanted to take my um, my notes, whatever writings and so on, take out of the country. But you, have to, you already mentioned Lavlit, the, the censorship bureau. 
And I didn't, and obviously I knew that they would make it, uh, you have to put stamp on each, I didn't want to do it and so on. So I went and I was told that the Dutch embassy in Moscow, at that time they handled all the cases related to Israel, to the immigration, because we all immigrate with Israel pass. So when I was standing in line, then um, undercover, plainclothes KGB officer, I learned later on, of course, I didn't know. He just started a conversation with me and so on. He then called the other policemen and they took me out and they held me for three hours in um, one of the offices to wait until KGB arrives. And I actually describe it if anybody's interested in the uh, NYU site with my name. This chapter is published. It's called A Small Iron Door in the Wall. But they let me go eventually. But that, that was not the best three hours in my life, as you understand, no. until KGB comes. And then finally, literally, the mysterious one was the October 8th is the day when I left the Soviet Union, immigrated. And in Sheremetyev Airport, when I went through the customs, then all of a sudden, when I had a scrapbook of my work, whatever I published over the, these 10 years of my life there, I just took it from my memory. It did nothing else in mind. And then the KGB man came out and looked through it, and he tear from my scrapbook uh, many pages. Not all of them, however. Not Crocodile publication, not Literary Gazette publication, but one in the Moscow local paper, Lenin's Banner. And I could not find out why he particularly chose this one. I don't want it to reveal to the, your listeners why. It's the last paragraph <laughs> of my book. <laughs> and you'll have to get the book in the jaws of the crocodile. <laughs> explains. To explains find the story. The last paragraph of my book is, explains it because it took, it took me many, many years, almost like 25 years to understand what happened. Amazing. So, Emil, let me just ask you, because once you came to the United States and, you know, you started in a different vein, but you were began all of this writing, were you able to continue writing satire? And how would you compare the satire that you found in the U.S. compared to the Soviet? You gave a little bit in terms of publication and popularity, but is there any possible point of convergence that you would see and perhaps maybe even over time, because now we've just come through this Trump period where, my God, it would be rife for satire. But let me ask you just your impression on that. When you came, did you continue writing satire? And, and how did you find American satire? Well, first of all, as you understand, coming from the totally different world to understand, uh, to come to satirize something. First of all, you're full of gratitude to the country to accept it. So you obviously take their institution as you know, untouchable to the begin with. It took me a while to start writing about something about America that I could not, as an immigrant, understand. And actually, what you're asking me about is actually the subject of my new book that I'm working on. Okay, so <laughs> maybe... So this is a good thing because I was going to ask you what you're working on, but it's also a good time to ask you. I want to ask you about two films, actually. One is a work of satire that came out a few years ago, maybe maybe three now, I can't remember exactly, The Death of Stalin, which I think it's really, it, it is so absurd. But as I used it in my classes, it says you're not going to get a better telling, in a sense, of the way that you know, the, the death of Stalin was handled in the Soviet Union. Well, it's but it's true. I have, I have to say that I was really impressed that obviously with the passage of time to look from afar from America, 
into the events of that time, it was quite accurate. There, there were Very. a few, yeah. few things that I would have argued with that was not quite true. But uh, otherwise, the, the main thing, the main events were shown exactly this, because nobody knew what to do with it, because the power is too big. And these people around Stalin, who uh, obviously everybody wants to grab whatever piece they can they can have, there was no... Uh, no friendship <laughs> lost, so to speak, at that time. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, you know, there's now that we're seeing a lot of the, you know, these new films coming out, and I want to move to the one that we're going to talk about, but sometimes it defies description because it is so, you see what authoritarian terroristic rule will result in, in terms of what the population, but not just the population, especially the inner circle, the people around the dictator, in this case, around Stalin, must resort to, and how dependent they are on the one hand, and fearful on the other, and don't know how to react, even after he's gone. And it's really quite extraordinary. And I, I wanted to talk to you about the new film, Andrei Konchalovsky's Dear Comrades, which I think is masterful. And it's just come out. You can stream it on, I think, Hulu and probably Amazon and other places. And it's well worth it. Andrei Konchalovsky comes from a really, let's call it a prestigious literary family in the Soviet Union. His brother is Mikhalkov, who did Burnt by the Sun. He did Inner Circle, which I think is far more critical or, you know, didn't win the Academy Award, but it's the one that I prefer. But in this one, Dear Comrades, it's shortlisted for the Academy Award coming up, but he documents and tells the story in a subtle and brilliant and devastating way that is true to the events, as far as I know them, of the strike and then subsequent handling of the strike in 1962 in the southern Russian city of Novocherkask. And what's interesting is that, of course, how do you have a worker state where you handle a worker strike in the way that it's being done? So I'd love to get your impression of it first on how historically accurate it is. And I also want to say that I met one of the leaders of that strike, Pyotr Suda. He was legendary to me because I had been reading about his role and then how after the strike, he spent 12 years in camps. And then when he was let out of the camps, he started to write about what happened. And when I was in Moscow in 1989, I went to this big Congress of the informal left, as it was called then, or organizations allowed to for the first time be there. And somebody put his hand up in the back of the crowd and he said, yeah, yeah, Pyotr Siud. And I went, oh my God. And I ran to him to see if I could interview him. He continued trying to organize workers in the Soviet Union. And he died, of course, the next year in mysterious circumstances, murdered in the street. But let's go to Dear Comrades and this uh, depiction of what happened in Novocherkask. What did you think? I think that from historical point of view, it was quite accurate. I had some doubts at one moment that whether the KGB was the sole responsible for the shooting or the army took as well. But I just, one friend of mine from Moscow, they sent me interview with the general who consulted the movie. That he, uh, nothing, everything, of course, uh, 1960 after that, to the end of the Soviet regime, everything was blocked. The, no information came out of it. No one only, knew about it. Only at the end of it, 1990, 1991, they started to formal kind of a investigation of what really happened. So from the historical point of view, it's quite accurate. The only thing that I had, uh, how to say it, this is this irony that was in the movie that you kind of hinted at is that the workers 
rise up against you know price rises and cuts in their in their wage. So on, while their income went down and so on right mm-hmm. but they were that's interesting that they were suppressed by means of the that time already those in power who opposed Stalin's method. So the, we're talking about in the time of Khrushchev and the supposed Khrushchev, yeah, thaw. Khrushchev, after, after his uh, denunciation of Stalin's crime and humanity, actually sends, <laughs> basically, his commission, people who were sent to, down to uh, the locality to, to talk what happened and so on, used the same method. What could be more dangerous in the so-called workers if the workers themselves rise up? Well, but that's the whole point. It shows that basically the system after Stalin's death did not change in its nature. You know what I mean? Yes, Stalin himself was attacked personally and so on. But those under him, like Khrushchev and Mikhail and so on, they were not better in that sense. They did not feel that this is, you know, KGB was allowed to, to shoot people. But but the one thing that you would have assumed is that in the aftermath of the enormity of Stalin's purges, that then it would become more selective and more subtle. And here you see when faced with workers, and I should just say that the response of the authorities to the workers uprising and strike in Novocherkask was the pattern of the way that they always did it. The workers usually did not strike over the actual conditions of work, but the conditions of life. So, you know, there were shortages, housing was bad. It wasn't just the workers that would go on strike, but their whole families, and it would soon spread to other factories and to regions. And usually the response of the authorities was to concede to all the demands and the next day round up all the leaders and whisk them off to the camps or shoot them to prevent it from going further. And so what you see here, and this is, you know, in this film, we don't want to give it all away, but it was such a drastic response. And then the cover up, because this was, as you say, and as uh, people who know about what happened in Novichokas, it really didn't come out until, what, the 90s? 90s, right. Yeah, it was totally suppressed of any knowledge about it because of the subversive mentor. How come the workers, and that's actually cited in the movie, we have a democratic state, we have right for demonstration. There's nothing wrong with it, right? right. No. So, do you recommend the film? I would highly recommend. I would. You mentioned the film, uh, the other film by Control. Inner Circle. Inner Circle. There is a difference. The Inner Circle. I I love to show it in my class in Russian Cinema and Society at Hunter College because it's it probably the best movie for the foreign for people who never lived in Soviet Union to understand the system because it shows how the system of little bribes or little advantages given to little people, how they supported the system with the hero, the main hero of the movie. In this particular movie, Dear Comrades, yes, obviously you will have to see it, but it's more like illustration of the history, not an attempt to show the inner working of it. Although there's obviously there is some connection with the other movie is that uh, if you remember the main protagonist, the woman in charge, she's a part of the city party committee. She gets into the back door to get mm-hmm. some, <laughs> some that was great. Uh, that that shows her actually highly privileged position. 
Yeah, because let me just explain to the listeners. So there's a time of shortage of food and she just walks. This store has got a long line and this, the shelves are empty. The woman behind the counter just tells people, sorry, there's just nothing here. And they'll, they're desperate to eat. And she walks into the back door and, and the woman just brings out every delicacy from anywhere. And no money is exchanged hand because she's a higher up. So she just gets those things. That's her privilege. And there is a one perfect line in the movie saying when, when somebody says, oh, how come? And so, aren't you paid to shut up? In other words, <laughs> this was the payment for how she's in a privileged position. It's brilliant. I mean, I think for anyone who wants to understand yeah. how that system worked, look at these films, read this book. But maybe you wanted to just say, fine. I, I wanted to say, finally, I also agree with you that Inner Circle, Konchalowski's other film that was a, a co-production in it, but it, it kind of tells the life that's based on a true story of Stalin's projectionist who loves Stalin. He adores him. So what you get is the idea of the average Joe or the average Ivan and how they perceived all of the killing and purges that affected his own family. But yet he wasn't able to see that because he loved Stalin so much. And so it makes you wonder, you know, some people call it the enigma of Soviet society. Watch this film, the inner circle, and you'll get a glimpse Of how it works. Emil, we've completely run out of time, and I want to thank you so much, as always, for educational and enlightening and also funny, uh, you know, encounter. We're talking about Emil's latest memoir, In the Jaws of the Crocodile, a Soviet memoir, and it's by Emil Dreitzer, and it's just out by the University of Wisconsin Press. And, you know, it's just a great read. You will want to put it down, like all of his other books. And I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. <laughs>